0: This is the second episode of my new series where I try to write a novel from initial idea all the way through to finished book on the podcast. If you haven't listened to the first episode, I'll put a link in the show notes of today's episode. You can go back and I suggest you listen to that first. It is over two hours long. That was an unfortunate artifact of the thinking process but I think you'll probably enjoy this episode more if you've listened to at least some of that Uh, although you are welcome to jump right in now if you prefer there just may be a bunch of stuff that I refer to that you don't understand your call. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. No time for an exhaustive intro today, well there is, I just don't want to do it, because this, what you're listening to right now, when you could be out there in the world touching a stranger's face like a wacky maverick determined to expose the flimsiness of the social contract that binds us to stifling conventions like fiat currency and bipedal locomotion, what you're listening to, don't go out and touch a stranger's face unsolicited, by the way, please, uh, especially if you're in a country observing social distancing restrictions, uh, It's it's a, a joke, I suppose, that inadvertently was in poor text Look, be safe be respectful of other people's bodily autonomy even if there isn't a pandemic on and you're listening to this in some glorious future I mean much of the guidance suggests not touching your own face in fact so don't do that either you know the way actors do in in those scenes where the person looks at themselves in the bathroom mirror before splashing cold water on their face don't do that either, although a lot of the science is suggesting that it's largely passed by Ares. Anyway, look, no more pandemic talk at all, I promise. But what you're listening to right now is the second episode in the series where I talk about trying to write a novel. Not just any novel, but a delicious, rumbunctious yarn. A fantasy adventure novel is what I want to do. Last episode, I talked about how I'd started fixating on a rough story seed about a monarch who gets assassinated, then resurrected by parties unknown so they can seek revenge, I was going to initially just come up with a bunch of ideas and and try to pick amongst them but for some reason that had stuck in my head a couple of days before recording and I felt like it would be dishonest for me to set up a bunch of ringers and then deliberately pick that one that was clearly my favourite. I talked a little bit about brainstorming the mechanics surrounding the terms of this monarch's resurrection, you know, what might the costs or limitations be of their coming back to life. I suggested a time limitation might be useful, uh, you know, that they can only come back for a certain number of days, uh, which I tried to anchor firmly in the pulp action genre. But um, let's be honest, It's more truly typified by Cinderella. You know, Cinderella's transformation ends on the stroke of midnight. Can she blue ball the prince before her powers run out? Immediately, we're in a situation where, with every second that passes, Cinderella's predicament is getting worse and the tension is ratcheting up. It's zombie Cinderella, is what I'm doing, but more murdery. I also gave a very brief précis of a Michael Moorcock's formula for writing a novel in three days. I think when he says three days, he really does mean three full days of writing from the moment you open your eyes to the moment you go to sleep. You're there at the desk with no distractions. You've got coffee, wine and sustenance. Delete is appropriate. Your plan and your big pile of lists of objects, people, images, etc. And you just type. You just hammer through it. That's his idea. Now, I happen to think, That the novels Moorcock produced using that formula are not his best. I suspect he would agree. Um, But it's pretty impressive that they exist at all. See, but look there. Um, Already my perfectionism is creeping in. I'm starting to, you know, hedge and stuff. Because I'm kind of excited about diving into this. I think I'm getting more excited the more of these episodes I do. And starting to hear people's feedback. And, you know, they're interested in what I'm doing. But I can't help wanting what I produce to be immediately cool uh you know which you'd think would be a positive impulse but then immediately i'm trying to defend that mental notion of a cool story from the wounds and deformations of perceived mistakes so already i'm trying to anticipate wrong turns and save myself the pain of taking them really bad strategy when it comes to creativity and also writers will say all the time write a rubbish first draft you know write it and just get it out there it doesn't matter if it stinks you can fix it later But we do make a point of generally not sharing those first drafts where everything's rubbish. Uh, And as much as I'm saying, because it makes me sound more sympathetic and kind of vulnerable to say, I want to save myself from the disappointment of failure, it's also a kind of vanity, or if I want to be sort of more value neutral about it, embarrassment. I want you to think that I'm a better writer than I am. So I kind of want to disguise when I come up with poo-poo ideas, or a duff sentence or take a misstep I would like to give you the impression that I am less fallible than i am anyway today i want to generate some second string characters um some potential foils antagonists for our um protag. i don't know if this story needs you know like a mentor figure a romantic interest or multiple romantic interests um, we haven't even decided on the name gender or personality of the protagonist yet um yet but i feel like or at least for the purposes of this exercise i'm thinking that a good way to approach these supporting characters is to embed each one in a particular place. So each character in the story embodies a specific locale. That way, as our res- resurrected royal protagonist, can I just start saying protag now? Is that too cutesy-poo and loosh? Do I sound like my standards are dropping? Our protag there, I'm committed now. Our protag No, no, absolutely not. Our main character, our MC. So as our MC, no, protag is better, protag. Moves around following this trail, the clues, you know, who killed them and why. Maybe they know from the beginning who killed them and they're just going on a kind of kill bill style rampage of revenge maybe they don't know and they're hunting these people down and saying what happened um, maybe they have no idea they can't remember the circumstances of their death maybe there's an element of uh post death uh, uh post death forgetfulness what's that term that means forgetfulness um you're screaming it and it's ironic isn't it that i can't remember uh the term for forgetfulness anyway maybe they have a a, a, they can't remember the circumstances of their own death i mean i feel that i feel like those kind of plots are slightly cheesy or they're kind of done all of this is done though that's fine is it good i suppose is it is that a good way of creating tension in the reader or is it better if they know and we know who did it and we're going for that That, that actually my problem isn't that that my problem isn't that it's hack my problem is that it doesn't necessarily create as much tension as we know right from the beginning we're there when they get stabbed or shot or pushed off a balcony or whatever and we have as much information as possible so actually we know the stakes right from the beginning we don't necessarily know everything but we know amnesia there i got there in the end So, like, see, but we get, but basically, you know, as they move around following the trail of, you know, uh, clues, you know, facing down these different characters, um, they can also flesh out the kingdom, well, well, I guess the nation, because we don't know whether they're going to be a king yet, you know, we get world building baked in, and it means that each distinct section feels different, just on a pure, just keeping the story fresh throughout, right, having different locations should make it interesting and cool, right? Yes, if you've ever played video games, you'll immediately perceive that what I'm suggesting is an end-of-level boss format. This is basically, you know, like... It's not well, it's not like Sonic, because that's always a themed version of Robotnik, but like Spring Hill Zone, Carnival Night Zone, you know the zones. Um, you know, th- these have different themes, but then maybe it's a bit more like Mega Man, in that each, each boss... Is in their themed area. I'm not saying they're literally going to be like Fireman, Gutsman, whatever. Gutsman, interestingly, in Mega Man, his power, Fireman's power is fire. Iceman's power is ice. Gutsman's power sounds horrible, but actually, Gutsman throws a rock. And you'd say, well, why didn't they just continue the naming conventions and call him Rockman? Well, because in Japan, Mega Man is called Rockman. Even though he doesn't throw rocks, he's just generic and even though he's called mega man and you don't need to know this but it's just that's why later on he he gets a dog companion and that dog companion is called roll doesn't make any sense in is he called roll no he's called rush in the english one roll is a different character see this is why i don't go into mega man deep lore on this podcast anymore because i look like a total tit so like Basically, it's the idea of a series of lieutenants embedded in themed stages that somehow embody some aspect of their character. I think that would make it varied. That would make it cool. And and you do in action movies, right? You get lieutenant characters. You know, the while the main character goes to face off against the boss. You know, and there's like a big fight scene. You also get sometimes the second string character will go off and, uh, and and face the kind of like the captain of the orcs or something and they'll have a little fight themselves you know people pair off against their kind of rank equivalent in a lot of these movies they have their little fight there now one question has to be if i do this how do we make things sure things progress throughout because the time restriction is a good start that this this monarch only has a certain number of days but i think we need at some point to figure out why the protagonist needs to tackle the characters if were there's a suite of conspirators or whoever they are in a particular order you know something has to be gained at each juncture they can't just be defeating them and moving on to the next with nothing learned nothing having changed and a sense that they just have to plod through all of them otherwise it's less a novel and more a mini-series with a sequence of monster of the week episodes which you know which isn't a bad format for a mini-series I'm just not sure it's a good way to do and structure a novel also if the reader knows the the format because they you know readers are generally reasonably genre savvy and get a sense of what the shape of something is if they know the format is take down the big six or however many lieutenants you've in- introduced where's the tension when they're facing person one or three you know it's like well we're not going to learn much new here they're going to just be facing off against this person but we know at some t- i mean sometimes you know the plot's kind of on rails And there can't be much to imperil them in these intermediary bits. You know, when we know we're on two or three, we know this isn't going to be a big turning point in the story, right? Now, on the other hand, there can be huge pleasure in familiarity and repetition. We don't watch Poirot and go, well, he's not going to fucking fail to find who did, who done it. Like, we don't think he's going to get stabbed halfway through. And so you could say, well, what's the point? Well, the point is that we're seeing him do something in a uh, kind of interesting familiar format and we're seeing how that format is varied each time and we're enjoying the different iterations in the same way that the rules of tennis remain consistent over different tennis matches they're not continually going today today's tennis match is not like it's not like a card anime you don't like turn up to play (laughs) in Wimbledon and then the other the rival tennis player says today's game will be a little different and then kind of flames start coming out or you know gravity inverts that would be cool um and you know more full wimbledon for not doing that now look but there can be pleasure in familiarity it, of course there can but for me at least for our purposes with this bit I feel like we need surprises. I feel like if you're going to use tropes, the the great thing about them is you're leveraging readers' expectations to get a lot of info delivered really, really quickly. Um, but then I think you need to use that apparent familiarity to set up expectations that we then upend in exciting ways. Or we just get the tropes out of the way and we move into what's going to happen between these two people butting heads. How can this be interesting? So look, if the story had vampires or minotaurs or, or sentient oozes with iPad screens sunken into the front of them that project an image of their faces, like those are all quick archetypes that readers understand, well, okay, so oozes with customised animate tablet faces aren't exactly archetypes, but they also do slam together to really familiar things, you can imagine a big blob of gelatinous ooze and you can imagine an iPad, right, and That makes an original image that you can see immediately without really taxing you. And the same with vampires, minotaurs. I've created a whole, I've just, you know, you bring to mind a whole creature and a whole mythology and, you know, a tacit sense of their rules without my having to do very much. Bitey person, bull man, blob with... Apple technology for a face. And I'm saying that's a positive, right? I'm not being dismissive of those things. It allows you, the author, to focus on moving the story forward or doing interesting things with character, you know, rather than sort of painstakingly bringing the reader up to speed. It can be super useful. I've been watching Craig McCracken's Kid Cosmic on netflix with my daughter suki and it deals heavily in tropes you know it's it's borrowing from a bunch it's about there's an alien invasion and some superpowers from magic rings that are you know very much a a nod towards um the you know the marvel universe uh infinity stones it doesn't in any way you know pretend that it's not um But it's really cool because those tropes are so quick that that can just be established and then we can just move into stories and characters and backstory and what's going to happen next. And it can can be so pacey and get through so much story. And then do really, really funny jokes as well and really poignant beats every now and then because there's just space where none of that world building needs setting up about what the rules are around aliens, what the rules are around superpowers. And there's been some cool twists and it's exciting, Um, but it just keeps borrowing from a bunch of tropes and then going, okay, so we don't need to waste time explaining this to you. So they don't waste any time explaining to you the story starts moving and that's cool. But like, anyway, the plot and how we use these characters can come later. We can kind of hash that out later for now I'd just like to bosh out some archetypes let's work out because if you're going to use tropes you have to work out which ones you're going to use which ones you love right which ones are you really enthusiastic about you know if you're going to do a good pastiche I think that always always comes from a place of deep love I think some of the best parodies in the world are done by people who love the thing they're parodying you know Let's look at some potential candidates, you know, interesting people for our undead stroke resurrected protag to visit, interrogate, fight, whatever. You know, who are they? I'm not going to come up with their names yet. I think that's a sort of fiddly business for later on, but it would be cool to maybe nudge my creative production towards archetypes who imply a certain setting, you know, resonant archetypes. I tell you what, because I don't really know what I'm doing, I'm kind of making this up as I, I sort of always lead into stuff as if I'm (laughs) I know what's coming next but I don't because I don't know what I'm going to come out with but why don't I do a quick list of genuine archetypes you know potential jobs government positions whatever things that might appear in this story um these are going to be characters high up in the hierarchy of this kingdom queendom nation whatever um and then once I've done monarchy, that's the term, that's a gender neutral term, isn't it? Monarchy. Then once I've done that list, once we've got some wet clay, we've got some people, some shapes, then we can come back and see how or if indeed it is possible at all, we can give some of these archetypes an interesting twist. Maybe we can slam two archetypes together. Um, OK, so I'm figuring this out on the fly here. Um, maybe we need to generate two lists. Maybe I need to generate one of potential Ruling positions, you know, like head of the army, royal advisor, etc. And the other is a collection of more generic archetypes from any situation, you know, like I'm thinking of ones, but maybe ones that are stereotypes associated with specific domains. I'm thinking like K pop idol, wealthy miser, etc. Got to be very cautious, obviously, when it comes to stereotypes, even if you're setting out to challenge them, that you don't accidentally end up channeling some tropes with very grim histories or problematic ideas because then even without your meaning to you might be coding a character as a certain type of person and speaking to even in unintentionally reinforcing some problematic narratives you know you might without realizing it give the reader the s- signal oh i want you to compare this person to real world well there's no such thing as a quite like a real world stereotype but this real world kind of trope and you might just end up creating politics that you never intended because you were just grabbing without really thinking about what those things meant oh god it's not as easy as it well it doesn't seem easy it's never seemed easy to me look maybe i'll just come up with some character thumbnails first let's kind of get this get all our ducks in a row then we can have a look at them see where we are See if we can twist them. And when I say we, I mean I. See if we can twist them a little bit without making them overly complicated or fiddly or trying to cram 16 ideas into a sing- single person. Um, I'll go for coming up with some potential characters in this monarchy's hierarchy, let's say based on how it, long it took me in the last episode, because I did give myself 10 minutes, but I'll give myself 20 minutes on the timer this time. Then I'll come back to you and let you know what I came up with. What do you say? Um, If you'd like to join me in writing or doing a creative list for 20 minutes, then I warmly invite you to do so. Just pause the podcast during the little musical sting I'm about to edit in. Set a timer and you can bosh out some ideas. Always a positive way to pass a short span of time that will vanish whether you choose to use it or not, but no pressure. But if you'd like to join me for doing 10 or 20 minutes of creative writing, maybe a list, maybe just a free write, maybe something on what you're doing you know i just i warmly invite you to if you want to um either way see you in 20. incidental music break 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 break. Incidental music break.
1: Incidental music break.
0: Incidental music break. break. And I'm back. Phew. Here's what I managed. So here's my list. Unexpurgated list. So a priest stroke archbishop of the official state religion, maybe a particular sect or subsect of it, or an abbot if it's like a monastery, uh, I'll need some specific odd object of adoration like wasps, the moon, or some figure like a child drowned in a well, or an iron bear. Corrupt hypocrite is the usual format for this kind of character, maybe true believer, zealot, Uh, The, you know, this character's home area could be some kind of grand cathedral of brass and stained glass, the steam cathedral, or perhaps heated glazed pottery through which steam is channeled, drips with condensing steam, no hard edges, everything curved and disconcertingly organic. So that was the first one I had done. Second one is national poet, writer of a national epic poem, or maybe composer of the anthem. Again, could be corrupt hypocrites, sprawling in wealth and flatterers with huge country estate, Could be anguished, melancholic, broken with despair, struggling with block and doubt. Would not seem like the biggest threat to our protag, but maybe they have hired bodyguards? Maybe they're paranoid, maybe they know a great deal and so the challenge is not defeating them, but teasing out what they know about the conspiracy. Their area, their home area, could be a, their level, if you like, could be a bucolic estate or maybe a pastiche of one within the city limits, you know, follies, little waterfalls, groves with blossom, a boating lake, etc. Although if it's far away, that adds a time pressure on the protag, which creates another interesting challenge. How can they cross a long distance fast? They're choosing to sacrifice time, which adds pressure and if they have to steal a horse-stroke airship or stow away on a boat or get on a busy train without being recognized and with no money so much the better so it's a, a different type of challenge than just beating someone up or infiltrating somewhere Next character? How about Admiral of the Navy, a war hero, rival in power to monarch, so prime suspect for supporting treason. Maybe they're unhappy with how defended the country is, uh, the amount of resources, controlling colonial possessions, or you know the strength of their trade fleets, or whatever. Maybe this per- this admiral has a much better idea of the international situation. Could be a way of introducing external threat of foreign powers who will pounce if the country collapses in a succession war. Um, It could be good to make the Navy something different than just conventional sea ships, maybe giant whales, airships, airships are tropey and well understood by most readers, a Sky Navy and a Sky Admiral. The Dock, in inverted commas, could be a gigantic floating island above the city, the Sky Admiral's own sort of mini fiefdom and rival base of power. Here's another one I had down, um, mage stroke soothsayer character, um, Uh, head they head up an arcane academy of some description who they read futures for the monarch and the country maybe they scry and instruct students in the way of magic maybe they're not intrinsically interested in power but their ability to probe the future means their skills are in high demand and they always have the ear of the monarch have they been reporting what they see honestly question mark um, so i guess their area their zone their level their locale would have to be academia perhaps with all sorts of arcane flourishes i.e water flowing upwards strange trees floating <laughs> strange trees brilliant Tim i'm not gonna i'm not gonna roast my ideas all the time but strange trees is like you know i'm phoning it in then well he walked through the area and he knew there were wizards because there were strange trees no look I'm not going to do that to me all the time. This is, you know, these are raw ideas. It's funny, funny, uh, as good as it makes me feel to roast myself. <laughs> That's not a great way for me to get over. You can see why perfectionism is a problem for me. Floating steps, portal transports, conjured fire, etc. I can work out costs for the magic system later. You know, how how is all this powered? You know, who's paying for this shit? You know, how does magic work without completely destroying the economy? Of course if magic needs a particular resource then the kingdom needs to secure that resource possibly by force maybe that's why they have colonial possessions if they do or it could be the very same magic that has allowed the monarch's resurrection it could be this could be an opportunity to flesh that out a little bit there could be multiple schools of magic competing disciplines of which the soothsayer is potentially adept a little in a little bit of all. Another character that we might see is a thief king stroke crime boss, some underworld leader who might have been involved or might know something about what went down. They might have an ear to the ground or multiple ones. After all, if the monarch was assassinated, it might have involved poison which would have to be procured or a hired killer who this crime boss might know or have heard rumours of. The crime boss's home turf could be some incredibly swanky club or gambling hall. Could also be some warrens or catacombs. The key thing is that the monarch must be learning about a whole side of their nation they've never seen before. They're going to be very out of their depth if they're going into the criminal underworld. Maybe to reach this person, they witness extreme poverty and deprivation they've never seen before. The crime boss may be horrible, but they're no more illegitimate, basically, than than a bloodline monarch. There's probably something a bit squalid and sad about the whole affair I've written. Even with the conspicuous consumption, the whole area must be partly filled with the people squeezed out by the social structure. But then, we're thinking, what's different about this area? How is it new and not just a generic slum with addicts, poverty, migrant workers, etc.? Is it in an interesting area, like an open-cast mine that constantly gives off smoke and heat or built into a cliff face or underground, dug out of the fossilised carcass of some giant creature or the bodies of many creatures? Could have stilt houses or metal gantries or spines branching out from crystalline structures. Worth brainstorming, I've said. So that's just my light little note to myself saying there's a kind of can of worms there that's worth opening at some stage, but probably to keep with my time going uh, and not run out of time listing characters, I'm not going to start doing a sub-brainstorming within this time of the ways in which the slum area could be different. Definitely has to be more than a generic shanty town kind of thing. So sibling stroke rival heir was my next one. A sibling or a rival heir. The person who has assumed the throne in the the monarch's absence so assuming that there's been a certain amount of time has passed since they're resurrected you know I'm thinking could be anything from a few days to years um, someone has taken the throne in their place the person who has assumed the throne um, is going to be the prime suspect as a result right are they a saber rattling nationalist a meek pliable person easily manipulated by some hidden puppet master perhaps they have some clear passion not related to ruling like raising wolves horticulture keeping doves brewing ale etc i'm not sure at this point how this makes for an interesting character or a good story but that's what i was listing so that's what you're hearing keeping some kind of zoo is always fun i've written which is true both in the story and in real life. Or rare orchids, so the whole of their palace is kept artificially humid. The upholstery is rotting, the plants are slowly taking over. Also good if they clearly have these delicate plants that mean a lot to them, because if they're damaged that will incense them. If their domain is the palace, that could be nice for the protagonist to see their former home territory transformed, overgrown, rotting, humid, unfamiliar. Water streaming down the walls, canvases bearded with mould. Another character is direct advisor to the monarch, a chamberlain character who runs the royal household, manages the finances, has the ear of the monarch. We might see them before the assassination if the story starts that early. Archetypally, the number one suspect in these stories, they often mix, these are just notes to myself, um, often mix with the jester stroke eunuch archetype as the jealous schemer close to power who tries to overthrow the established order the eminence gris moving behind the scenes well i've actually written moving behind the schemes which is a kind of beautiful freudian slip so they're often warning the monarch against being too lenient too generous too trusting and that's why we think that they're evil they're going, your majesty you must not be kind to this petitioner but what if the monarch gets then gets assassinated i mean that kind of proves the person right if they weren't anything to do with it and they were maybe the monarch was too gullible too lenient too easily swayed for wanting to seem generous and beneficent you know was this advisor involved at all maybe their suspicious movements after their monarch's death are actually them trying to find out who was responsible and make moves to uncover the conspiracy maybe they're kind of like a red herring maybe they're in hiding because they think they'll be next And then I just, um, to finish this off, I just hammered out a list turbo-style because I had a sense that these entries were getting a bit long. So I put the assassin themselves, that's a character, um, some kind of broker-stroke accountant who has access to a bunch of paperwork, chief of police, foreign diplomat, the monarch's love interest-stroke secret lover, their child-stroke children, some political prisoner locked up in the dungeons or the big prison, a powerful business magnate, an opera idol, a famed explorer-stroke adventurer, an investigative journalist, head of the palace guards, elderly royal mentor, sword fighting teacher, smuggler. And that's where I got to when the time ran out. I don't know how I feel about that list. You know like I guess I was deliberately trying to generate archetypes, you know, familiar characters, but maybe because of that it feels to me like it lacks flavor. Uh, I'd like I suppose some of my favorites if I'm looking back over it are I do like sword fighting teacher, that came late. And a few of these could be slammed together, you know. Some of them that might be a bit empty, not all of them are mutually exclusive. I like Sword Fighting Teacher. I possibly like Elderly Royal Mentor. I like stories with elderly mentors in. They're always a character I enjoy. Um, I like the idea of an opera idol, just seems a bit different. Um, lover seems. Like it would be good to. I often shy away from including romantic stuff in stories or romantic interest, just because I'm always feel a bit uncomfortable doing it, a bit self conscious. So it could be a good thing. It certainly creates uh, just a, just it's just a point of tension. It could be quite good. Um, crime boss thing seems interesting. Difficult to know how to make that. They do seem super generic and really 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 vanilla um, at the moment. Um, I like the idea of a soothsayer, a mage, even though, again, they sound... but At least that's kind of, like, interesting and that's a, like, nice... I just feel that's quite rich, and I like the idea of them going to a territory that's all magic stuff going on, people learning magic and us getting a sense of the magic system of this world. I really like the idea of this sky admiral, just because I like the idea of the character having to get up to a flying island. And I, I, I've been reading... A history of um like science romance and st- ultimately steampunk but it's uh the art of science romance and steampunk and everything from you know like Robert Louis Stevenson and earlier stuff than that it's a Japanese book but it's all these beautiful posters and there's stuff with um old kind of Victorian autonoma- automata in it and um these amazing illustrations and you know uh, Captain Nemo and 10,000 Leagues Under the Sea and these beautiful beautiful old illustrations and Lewis Carroll stuff and lots of Victoriana in there and some of the steampunk stuff and the early science romance illustrations of these sky cities with kind of gantries in the clouds and airships with great blimps and these propellers and I had some very weird dreams after reading it and seeing this emptiness of all these clouds and these sky docks. I'd like to have some sky docks in it. I can just feel the little dreamy part of myself enjoying that. So I would quite like that one. The National Poet, I don't really like the area that the person lives in, but I like the idea of having a person who wrote the national epic, especially as it gives us some sense of the of the world potentially as well uh so those are the you know i like the idea of the priest as well but um i think it was jack kerouac who said you know first thought best thought when it comes to writing but to me that is that's bollocks obvious bollocks first thought most cliche thought generally for me at least like this priest figure for example let's take that state religion how can that be interesting because at the moment i'm just you know, I said a steam cathedral with brass and 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 stained glass, and that, it's all right. But you know, how can I give that more texture, more granularity, more of a hook? You might remember last episode um we talked about Michael Moorcock's idea of creating images with deliberate paradoxes. That's what he suggested when he was just saying generate very quickly a bunch of random images. Maybe that's one tactic I could take with this. You know, come up with some names of the church or the temple or whatever. I liked the sort of idea of their worshipping a child drowned in a well. It's a bit ringy, isn't it? It's a bit ringy. Um, But that specificness is cool. At least it gives us something to kind of bite onto. I suppose whatever it is that they worship or whatever details ultimately should point back to the centre of the book, right? It shouldn't just be some frippery, it shouldn't just be random. It should develop the world, maybe develop the rules, um, how life and death work, for instance. It should speak to some aspect of how this nation sees itself, how this monarchy sees itself, some aspect of royalty. You know, is the king or queen or monarch seen as divine, for example? Is is is, the, is there some creation myth enshrined in the church or temple that is used to give um, validation and authority to the monarch, royal family? And it should speak to the themes of the story as well um but then trying to find something that fits all of those criteria in advance might be paralyzing for me right if I'm going well these are the things that I need to hit simultaneously like I, I wonder whether I'm doing it arse backwards and I need to try and make this you know so maybe what I need to do is is find do some listing of images you know this randomness that Moorcock was suggesting just throw open the gates and see what comes up trust in my subconscious a little bit do a an, an understanding that, that, that most of them will be force be wrong if i do a list i'm only gonna be able to use one so all the rest will get thrown away so almost everything i write is going to be wrong so it's okay for it to be wrong and then later i can get out the hedge clippers and snip here and twist there and do some post hoc rationalizations to make the images fit maybe that's the way around is to kind of mood board and then zero in um another possible tactic is the similar idea posited by neuroscientist adam green when i had him on the podcast of creativity being about semantic distance between two concepts you know what isn't close to a temple a cult a preacher or an arch archbishop you know what notions concepts nouns descriptors are very far away from that kind of churchy thing and can we put two things together maybe even two very familiar things you know but two things that aren't familiar to one another that the collocation isn't obvious um, to create a third new feeling thing Um, you know it's kind of like getting two magnetic forces and seeing you know opposing magnetic forces and generating energy by pushing the two magnets together that's not how electromagnetism or any form of magnetism works I am sure but it sounded vaguely Plausible in my head. I think maybe the best policy here for me is to just dive back in and have a crack. I think I'm going to need to do another writing session, aren't I? Look, I'll genuinely only do 10 minutes this time. It doesn't matter to you because I'm just going to stop and then start again, so you won't know how long I've gone. Um, it wouldn't matter if I took half an hour, but I'm genuinely going to do this for 10 minutes because I think I'm going to try to produce more. But I think in the last one, I, I kind of lost myself slightly in doing those big paragraphs, and I just want a list of bullet points. So back in a sec. Mm it's me it's me it's me oh lord standing in the need of claire tim claire hi um so I, i've done 10 minutes now here's my list here's what i got steam cathedral gun church temple of fire temple of water and ice abbey of the howling silence church of the dark sun Monkey Temple, Temple of Rot, Stupor of the Idiot God, Followers of the Mistake, The Brethren, The Undeserving, Palace of the Forbidden Ecstasy, Saint Apocalypse, The Crucible of the Unborn Child, Sanctuary of the Faithless, Church of the Unrepentant Martyr, The Glass Temple, Church of the Tireless Engine, Gearworks of the Blessed Machine, Church of the Pious Blasphemer, Gout Cathedral, Hairy Temple of the Shaven Concubine, Shrine of the Healing Inferno, The Seven Crows, The Architects, Shrine of the Penitent Damned, Children of the Sickle, Miracle Silo, House of Dizzying Latitudes, Sect of the Chosen, Temple of the Pocked Moon, Church of the Unencumbered Beggar. Okay, so that was my lot. Um, some interesting stuff in there, some stuff that is patently dreadful that I considered removing and not sharing with you, but I think it's useful for you to hear you know, that I temple of fire is you know doesn't scream um originality or even something interesting, but I think you know it's useful for you to hear what what comes what genuinely comes up for me because you know every time I got blocked during that ten minutes because I you know that's not a lot of names for ten minutes. And it felt like a long 10 minutes. But every time I got blocked, I had words in my head. I was just simultaneously making the evaluation, these are shit, and inhibiting myself from writing them. Uh, Which just meant I wasn't writing anything. Because I was trying to find a replacement instead of writing them down so they were out the way so I could move on to the next thing. If you spew words onto the page, a lot of them will be unconscious puns or associations with stuff you've already heard of. You'd just be accidentally plagiarising things. And a lot of them will be bad. Sometimes it's worth, you know, it is worth spending just a second teeing up to see if you can go a bit further with your idea you know just just take it one more twist but then after a point that becomes its own kind of artifice its own trick or gimmick you know you probably see with mine how i'm reaching for those deliberate contrasts moorcock suggested and how all strung together like that they do start to seem a little bit samey a little bit of a style Still, it's obvious that part of me likes the idea of a big cathedral of steam and brass, or one with gears and cogs. You know, machine priests, basically done before. But we said we were going to free ourselves from anxieties about originality. I will gladly tread well-trodden paths. Gun Church is um is hilariously unadorned. I think. I I I, I it is hard not to read that list back without going full accidental partridge keep expecting to hear myself suggest monkey tennis in fact there is a few few lines down i've written monkey temple i have actually embraced my roots as a norwich-based niche audio broadcaster and become alan partridge monkey temple but what about that you know but what if we took one of alan partridge's classic ideas that he says into his um dictaphone inner city sumo and applied it to this problem what if it was a church that incorporated a form of sumo wrestling into its uh ceremonies now i'm aware in dungeons and dragons the temple of cord has lots of wrestling based ceremonies so that also is familiar territory um so it turns out even if you sort of make a ridiculous joke in comparison that you end up backing into something that's like fairly mainstream but it would be cool right you know bulky acolytes wrestling one another out of rings even if it's just in the background that would be a nice bit of flavor that would certainly be better you know i do like church of the unrepentant martyr Ooh, hey here's a possibility okay so here's, here's a thought right um what if the state religion the church um that we're talking about um, has it's mess- un- you know, unrepentant martyr, right? Here's what I'm thinking. Ha- ha- what if the unrepentant martyr, you know, what if the church has this Messiah or figure that they're actually waiting for? You know, that they've got uh, the equivalent of a second coming or, you know, some prophesied person. And what if the resurrected monarch of our story, either implicitly or in a way that to the protag shock we can see for ourselves, you know, are recognisable? as this figure of legend you know the story doesn't necessarily have to endorse the truth of this religion especially if the tenets are sufficiently vague but it would be cool to at least imply it um, and hopefully have some of that set up beforehand so the monarch's return and arrival at the temple is kind of like a reckoning you know with the corruption maybe the church's sort of own maybe oh this could be a sect within the church um, or it could be the church itself but this idea that the church has baked into it this idea that there's going to be the faith is going to be revived or is going to be purged there's going the faith is going to become corrupt one day and then it's going to be purged by this figure who strangely fits the bill of this resurrected monarch you know i liked pious blasphemer in the church at the sanctuary of the pious blasphemer that's flavory too it's a bit abstract but I like the words together it suggests a conflicted contrary figure of worship an overturner a revolutionary who's kind of going to be our protag so I like that I like tireless engine for different reasons I I guess because I don't want the church to you know just be a traditional British church or cathedral with stone arches and gargoyles and stained glass much as I think British cathedrals and churches are kind of interesting and cool and have their own history it, it tends to be the default when we're thinking of those kind of places what can be inside you know is what I'm thinking everything could be suspended by a network of ropes that crisscross almost like a spider's web some might be attached to bells which ring as you touch that rope maybe part of the religious rites are learning to cross the great interior without triggering any of the bells remembering and internalizing the precise sequence of ropes necessary to cross the room silently A, a giant spider or similar kind of beast could even live in the void at the top of the cathedral. Maybe it's one type of church, you know, maybe it belonged to some previous religion and it's been repurposed for by this second religion for different reasons. Maybe they took it over, maybe the previous uh, civilization, maybe this is kind of like a the, the, the ruins of a lost civilization that this church has been set up in, um, and, you know, now the... Uh, parishioners worship this giant spider thing or maybe the head priest is the giant spider could be a beast or it could be you know it could be just a a creature that eats people it could be very you know highly intelligent creepy spider cults aren't you know admittedly they aren't very original either but a bunch of ropes everywhere certainly makes for a great visual thinking about it i'm pretty that is a scene it's not ropes it's a literal web but there's a scene in in the nineteen in the nineteen eighties fantasy movie Krull, where someone has to cross a giant spider web, so maybe that's where I'm getting the visual from, or maybe it's from nineteen from Gladiators in the nineties. Who knows? But like, you know, I, I think it, it could be a cool visual, it could be a potentially fun action scene to have loads of ropes all strung up everywhere. Maybe we don't even know the head priest is a spider thing until we encounter them. You know, that like, the protag wouldn't think to mention it explicitly, you know, if they were going to go and see them. It wouldn't come out in their point of view any more that I'd specify a friend I was going to visit was human. Like, everyone knows this person is a spider. So there could be clues, right, in terms of some ways that they refer to them, but it's, and then we encounter, they go and see the priest and we encounter them for the first time. Or the thing that they worship, this spider, and and we'd be like, "Oh shit, it's a spider!" So, um, just when I was writing this, I got down my reverse dictionary from my shelf. If you've if you've never um if you're able to, if you're ever able to get hold of one, um, a hardback copy of the of the Reader's Digest reverse dictionary. This is um, I thoroughly recommend it. They're they're mostly only available secondhand now, but I. have so many writers I'm friends with have ended up getting one. Mine's getting slightly knackered on the spine, but um, a group of us went through Hay-on-Wye, um, officially the largest con- largest concentration of second-hand bookstores in in the world, and we brought bought every single copy of Reader's Digest Reverse Dictionary in the town. It's that good. My copy belonged to my grandfather. I've also got a paperback copy that I bought um because he wouldn't give me mine, but then he died and I inherited it. Um. And uh, obviously the loss was, was terrible, but um, sorry, I'm not making jokes about his death, but it was, um, I, w- I was really happy to, to get it because I don't think he fucking used it, to be honest. I think he, he, but he just wanted, I think it was useful for doing crosswords. And I found it in his house and, I, and that's the first time I encountered a, a reverse dictionary. It was amazing. And I said, can I have it? And he said, no. And that's fair enough because it was his... So I bought my own, and then when he passed away, I got it. So I win. No, that's not. That's uh, no. I love him dearly. I'm just um in a spiral now of of making meta jokes about the joke. Look, but it is amazing. It's such a useful book. So what you do with a reverse dictionary is you look up the general word, and it gives you specific terms associated with that word. So I just looked up spider, for example, and it has this word for a spider's for a spider's nest uh, Nidus, like Nidus, Nidus is a good name for like an abbot or a priestess or a reverend or whatever, right? Reverend Nidus, Holy Mother Nidus, like what? It just seems like a nice easter egg I could drop in, right? And maybe the church's name could have something to do with spinning or weaving or networks. So we have a thematic link to Arachnids, you know, the Gossamer Sanctuary, the Sanctuary of Unbreakable Gossamer, Church of the silver pattern so um the reverse dictionary um has helped me again here uh looking up net because like a a net's like a web they don't have anything under web but looking up net the correct term for net like is reticulate which sounds pleasingly adjacent to immaculate reticulate as in you know as in the immaculate conception Our Lady of the Reticulate Conception. See, that's cool because you kind of like a big spider, like births webs, right? Our Lady of the Reticulate Conception. Female spiders are always the badass ones in popular thought anyway. So maybe this leader of the church is is female. I'm I'm really feeling myself going down this spider line, which I was only introducing as a, a just a suggestion of something interesting that could be inside some ropes and now we've gone to webs and now so maybe this leader is female you know mother nidus abbess of the church of the silver pattern where they worship our lady of the reticulate conception with her limbs she directs the eight winds With her shining eyes she observes the spheres in their unceasing orbits. With her spinneret she weaves the threads of mortal fate. Those she blesses take on something of her perfect form. So Our Lady of the Reticulate Conception is the deity or object of worship. The Church of the Silver Pattern is the name of the religion. And Mother Nidus is the abbess who runs it, who may have arachnid features now that to me while being tropy as hell right it's not like we haven't seen those things before those elements but it's also kind of cool i'm willing to say on there like i'm kind of into that i'm excited about it which is all that matters at this stage no it's not original but it is specific there are some names some proper nouns it just feels ever so slightly lifted from priest church state religion and i feel the first stirrings of when our resurrected sof- sovereign has to go and see mother nidas has to go and face her because maybe nidas knows something maybe because nidas was one of the plotters and our protag is seeking revenge finally confronting this hub of clerical power in which case we can see precisely why they might have been you know why why their monarch might have been reluctant to directly challenge her until now you know maybe her church you know we don't know who is part of the church maybe its membership is partly secret um maybe people wear hoods when they go there or something so you don't know who in your hierarchy who in your guards is a member and 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 when it comes down to it is their first loyalty to their sovereign or to the church that already feels like a more exciting, atmospheric, different set piece when the monarch finally goes into this church, this huge void inside the cathedral space that's just strung with ropes. You know, a fight in the church of the silver pattern or a confrontation or even a like a tense chat, a standoff is gonna feel so different to just, you know, some grey haired one priest lighting candles in a standard church with stained glass and pews. Okay, so I, I think actually that's a nice introduction to this and I, I might stop there now and maybe next time I can take one or more of the other character ideas and see if I can flesh them out in the same way maybe I won't be able to that you know that, you know sounds planned all of this but I genuinely don't know i I, I don't know what's going to happen I'm I'm working out what I'm going to do next episode whenever I end the current one basically is honestly how I'm doing it you know obviously I've got some beats I know what a book lo- looks like and at some stage I've got to start writing it but um I don't know how many planning ones there'll be or whatever you know make, uh, it's just been exciting this episode actually to see bits of it coming together while talking to you and I don't know actually you know what I've described despite having visual and atmospheric appeal I certainly can see it a bit you know it could I don't know if it would work as a scene or multiple chapters I can genuinely write sometimes it there are problems you haven't foreseen until you come to write something down and it's much harder and and, and whatever I do it's going to still need that narrative pull the plot you know the character motivation the conflict you can't just design a moody set then say to the readers fuck you that's your lot my character's going to stand in it. I mean, some authors do, and I hate those scenes because we need something driving us through it. Um, <laughs> uh, y- y- you know, it, I mean, you can obviously design a moody set and say to the readers, fuck you, because that's literary fiction. That's another litfic zing for you friends, an unfair one. Maybe a reasonable characterization of how I pro- a- approach lit fic, at least. So more of a show of personal adequacy than anything else right dear ones thank you for joining me for a second episode mercifully shorter this time i'm going to try and keep these coming week on week this was fun um a little bit nerve-wracking but okay i hope it's got some neurons pinging for you some little action potentials firing away in your creativity nodes which are a real thing located in the anterior dorsolateral borealis just beneath a long cone-shaped structure known as benson's doobie if you enjoy the show and what I'm doing here, and you'd care to support me in my possibly doomed mission to write a whole ass novel on the podcast from beginning to bitter end, you can help me have the time and resources to do that by dropping me a few beans via my coffee page. That's uh, www.ko fi.com forward slash Tim Clare. There's a link in the show notes on my website, timclaib.co.uk, and also on my Twitter. Uh, bio you can click through um, also on my website timcloudpoet.co.uk you can drop me a line I love it when you write to me uh, not necessarily you personally but people let me know how you're getting on with your writing I'd love to hear that you know what you think about what I've talked about so far just um, click on the contact me link I don't get round to replying to everyone who writes to me um, but I do promise I read them all right that's it we're done take care of yourself, demand and expect that others take care of you too. You are so, so valuable. People won't always reflect that back to you, doesn't make it any less true. Thank you for listening and I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.